Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're taking a look at London with The Observer's architecture critic Rowan Moore and his book Slow Burn City, London in the 21st Century. Rowan Moore is the architecture critic for The Observer and previously for The Evening Standard. He's also a trained architect and between 2002 and 2008 was the director of the Architecture Foundation. His award-winning book, Why We Build, was published by Picador in 2012 and in 2014 he was named Critic of the Year by the UK Press Awards. Rowan's latest book is Slow Burn City, London in the 21st Century, which we're going to talk about today. Rowan, welcome to Little Atoms. Wonderful to be here. So give us a brief description first of all about what Slow Burn City is about. It's about London. It's London from the perspective of the present as this more and more extraordinary, dynamic, fascinating, overheating, possibly problematic place, which has really become the global city mm-hmm. in the world. Why um, London above others? Um, it's partly good luck to do with time zones, language. It's partly to do with policies of successive governments to encourage this aspect of the city. Um, it's partly because legal system, uh, political system, relative freedoms relative to other countries make it an attractive place to come. So, so I'm looking at it from the perspective of the present, but I'm also going back into the past to see how we got here and also see how things were done differently in the past and what we can learn from them. So the title, Slow Burn City, what do you mean by that? Slow Burn City is the kind of ideal of what London is at its best, and when I first thought of the book, I saw it as a description of, of mm-hmm. London, as it was at the time, which was a few years ago. And I think it's more and more becoming a historical description, because I think we're becoming a fast-burn city. And the idea is that cities always renew themselves. They're always changing. That's in their nature. That's mm-hmm. what they should do. And they do that by consuming what's already there and making it into something new. So the future of cities is always made out of the raw material given by the past. But there's such a thing as that happening too fast at a kind of catastrophic rate. There's also such a thing as it happening too slowly or not at all. And, of course, you can't, you can't regulate the way a city changes just like twiddling the knob on a, on a gas cooker. So it's an idea. It's something to think about as something to aim for that's never going to be perfectly achieved. You start the book with a look at the start of London Zoo and how mm. that's developed. And London Zoo really, I guess, is a metaphor for the, for the wider city, which is an interesting metaphor because everything in London Zoo that's certainly architecturally good mm. was like really unsuitable for its inhabitants. That's not quite true, but it does raise that important question. And the reason I talk about the zoo is I think you can... It's a nice sideways look at the kind of attitudes Mm -hmm. of the city. So um, if you look at the way animals were treated historically in London, they were treated quite barbarically as especially exotic animals, as sort of curiosities. Mm -hmm. They were fed inappropriate food. They sometimes were kept in appalling conditions. And in the 19th century, London Zoo was and in order to have a more scientific and humane way of doing animals. So it was kind of enlightened in that way. Mm-hmm. It was founded by, among other people, Stanford Raffles, who was also the founder of Singapore. Uh-huh. And there's a very strong link between, at that point between the, the zoo and the idea of empire. So British empire was all over the world, and mm-hmm. you're tra- bringing animals from all over the world, using the fact that London is a great port. So it's the idea that you can you know, capture the whole world and using your imperial power and look at it and put it in one place. 
At the same time, there was this enlightened spirit of humanity, education. At the same time, early on, there was a kind of social snobbery about it. The access was restricted to start with, and they said, um, basically, that you know, they didn't want the lower classes coming in. And then that changed, and, and the kind of enlightened ideas took over, it became more democratic, a bit less colonial. And this is expressed in the buildings over time, <laughs> different ideas about how do you house animals humanely, what's the best way to show them to the public. And then in the 20th century, it becomes a sort of enlightened, sort of centre-left, Maynard Keynesian attitude <laughs> that represented the kind of consensus at the time, where they want to be progressive, they want to sort of, they're high-minded, but they also want to be accessible to the public. And then in the 90s, well, the zoo nearly went bankrupt in the early 90s, and sorry, I shouldn't say bankrupt, but it nearly had to close down for financial reasons. And then in order to survive, they had to Disneyfy it a certain amount. So you see, so in terms of how that reflects in the architecture, in the early 19th century, they have things like the Giraffe House, which is like a sort of classical villa of the kind that were being built for rich people in Regent's Park. Then you have the mapping terraces in the early 20th century, which are very extraordinary structures, but which are based on an idea of, of a kind of naturalistic environment for bears and other animals that like, like climbing over rocky terrain. Then you have, in the 30s, the Penguin Pool, which is this sort of great icon of modernist architecture, beautiful, elegant structure, based on the idea that penguins would climb up its ramps and jump off. And so there's an idea of spectacle and sort of enlightenment at the same time. And then the great best building in the 60s was the Snowden Aviary, also one of the most successful. It's still doing exactly what it was built to do, which is an amazing piece of engineering that essentially puts these nets up, big tent made of nets, such that when you go inside, you almost forget the building's there. And so there's an amazing illusion of just being among the birds. And yes, not all of these buildings served the animals very well. I think it should be said that a lot of them were good for their time, but knowledge moved on of how to look after animals. But the penguin pool is no longer used as a penguin pool because these kind of penguins like to dig in the earth and mm -hmm. burrow, and they were, didn't have any of that, they just had concrete for their little feet. So rightly, although it's a shame architecturally, they've been moved to a, a new enclosure. That's a good example of, I mean, the new penguin enclosure is obviously better for the penguins in terms of its environment, yeah. which is obviously the most important thing, but it's also indicative of that newer, like you talk later in the book about the Natural History Museum and the, uh, yeah. the Earth Galleries and, and that sort of edutainment type. Yeah, I mean, Penguin Beach, I think, is one of the best of the new things that they have, newer things they've done at the zoo. There's other things at the zoo, like the Bugs Enclosure, which is just horrible because they don't let you look at the creatures uh, without a whole lot of sort of infographic gunk all around it. And, you know, you're supposed to appreciate a butterfly better if you see a giant cartoon of a butterfly. I mean, I, I just don't get it. So I think that's the negative aspect of where the zoo has gone and the Natural History Museum. They're so desperate to, to really be like a theme park, mm -hmm. to just attract visitors at all costs. That they sort of lose sight of what they should be really communicating about nature and, and, and the idea of wonder and also the idea of leaving something to the imagination, giving whoever it is who's, who's visiting the space to think for themselves. That's something I talk about quite a lot in the book, is, is the importance of not having every last bit of space programmed, dictated, scripted, just the freedom to wander and have your own thoughts and do what you like. And that, that idea, there's obviously... And we'll talk about this later on more specifically, but the sort of conflicts between public and private space and changing mm. meanings of that. But that, of course, is sort of, that's always been there. So obviously, once upon a time, there was common lands and then mm. they were enclosed and there were battles over the enclosure of that. Mm. But also, actually, you talk in the book about how there was like really early gated communities as well and things. So there's always been this sort um, of disjunction yeah. between... Obviously, you talked about the access to the zoo... But when we go on to talk about the, the creation of the parks, there was also like restricted access for the lower classes to the London parks to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a history of struggle and conflicts that, that never ends. You know, it's, it's never, it's not like a football match, you say, right, full time, sorted, public one, private one. It's, it's just an ongoing contest of different interests. And in terms of green space, there's different aspects to it. So you have the Royal Parks, which originally hunting parks for the monarch typically which became progressively more open 
Regent's Park was built essentially as a sort of private playground by the Prince Regent for, for him and his friends and for the people who lived in the houses around. was closed to public access and then was opened up. Hyde Park was a royal park and then it became a kind of parade ground of the aristocracy. And there's a great passage um, from Karl Marx that I quote, who was uh, in a, doing a, as a sideline, he was writing a, an article for a German left-wing uh, newspaper. And he reported on the protests that happened in the 19th century. And what they were protesting about was a Sunday trading bill introduced by uh, one of the Grosvenor family, one of the richest uh, aristocratic families in the country. And the proposal was to stop people shopping and going to pubs on Sundays. And as people in those days, working people worked six days a week, Sunday was the only day when they could do these things, pretty much. And then meanwhile, the aristocracy were riding around in their horses and carriages on Sundays in Hyde Park. There's a great quote from Lord Grosvenor where he says, um, he says, well, we do give our horses and servants a rest on Sunday, so we, you know, we observe the Sabbath as well. And um, that didn't really wash. So there was a big protest that went to Hyde Park. Um, in fact, there were two protests about a decade apart. One was called the Railings Affair. And essentially they were about the more general population sort of claiming Hyde Park for their own. And the other thing I should say, the Crystal Palace in 1851 was also in Hyde Park, and that was, and that was kind of an invasion by the, the middle classes, effectively, by the bourgeoisie, which the kind of aristocracy didn't like, and mm-hmm. there's quotations about that. So during the 19th century, you go from a time when the Hyde Park is seen as a place for the aristocracy, then the middle classes move in through the Crystal Palace, and then the working classes move in through the, the protests and the railings affair, when they ripped down some railings that were around the park. And that created what Hyde Park has been ever since, which is a space open to everyone and where you can have some level of political protest and you can have events and you know, there's a bit of a danger of it losing some of those qualities now, both because the area around it has just become so upmarket that it's not so readily accessible to everyone as it used to be and also because they are exploiting it more for paid events, which I think if you take that too far, that's potentially a problem. So that's Hyde Park. And then there's a different story of the common land which was land that, due to very ancient laws, uh, although it hadn't belonged to somebody, other people had the right of access to it. And that really went back to things like um, the need to, to graze sheep and gather firewood and gather material for thatching your roof and stuff like that. And in the 19th century, those needs had receded, and at the same time there was a cost, uh, an opposite demand to, to start building houses. So the owners of, of common land started saying, well, let's just build some houses. And there was a very sustained campaign that took about 50 years of just, just a group of people got together. Um, some of them you'd call NIMBYs nowadays. So there was a lawyer who lived near Wimbledon Common who was, didn't want the com- Wimbledon Common enclosed. There was John Stuart Mill, the philosopher. There was W.H. Smith, the founder of the book chain. There were also people who cut down trees for a living in Epping Forest, uh, foresters, or well, they didn't cut down the trees, they cut down the branches and foraged for firewood. And so there's this popular movement across a whole range of types of people, and they opposed development and enclosure on the basis of these old laws. But their legal case was by no means cut and dried, because the owners obviously said, well, you don't have sheep, you don't, you don't thatch your roofs anymore. You have coal, you don't need to gather firewood. So it could easily have gone the other way. But it was a very hard-fought legal and political battle, which took a very long time to get political support from Parliament um, and the Corporation of London, but eventually it did. And if that battle had gone the other way, Hampstead Heath, Wimbledon Common, Epping Forest, any piece of common land like Clapham Common, all over London, little green spaces, big green spaces, would have been built on. And we would have an utterly different city to the one we have now. And it would be a less desirable city. I don't think it would be the same sort of world-class city that the promoters like to talk about. But of course, at the time, the argument was, the argument of the landowners was, you know, this is bad for business, you're interfering with our rights to our property, we should be allowed to make as much money as we can. Um, So that's a beautiful demonstration of how building a great city is not just a question of leaving it to the market and private property. (laughs) And it shows how popular action can really make a a big difference. I'm John Grindrod, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's lots of examples in this book of 
either big public works that have been instituted by you know various governments or the London Council or the city that sometimes deliberately, sometimes inadvertently have had beneficial effect on on the populace. The Joseph Bazalgette's mm. sewage system is obviously one of them. And you talk about the the effect of the Clean Air Acts on pollution of the city and health. Then there's a, there's a section on the um, the expansion of the tube and how that sort of developed the city out and, and like Frank Pick and the sort of people behind the sort of extension of the Piccadilly line and stuff. But I want to talk particularly about the growth of public housing, brilliant public housing, council housing, which now we're in this position where some of those key estates are now some of the most desirable places mm. to live in, which obviously has the, you know... <laughs> It's the opposite effect of what it was intended yes. for, but it also demonstrates how good it was. Yeah, I mean, a very big argument of the book is against a view that's quite commonly expressed that London is a predominantly a city of trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a view that London was, for example, that the squares of Bloomsbury and Fitzroy were all built by the great estates, these big landowners who developed their green land, uh, open fields for for profit. And you have the docks and, you know, and, and the city of London. And you know, obviously business and trade is an incredibly important part of London. But it's less than half the story because there's also an amazing history of extraordinary public interventions, often in response to disasters brought about by trade running amok, um, and also popular action, as I was describing with the, with the commons. And yes, you said Basil Jet, sewage and, and the Clean Air Act are examples. And social housing mm-hmm. is another. And London more or less invented council housing with the Boundary Estate in Shoreditch in the late 19th century, which is very beautiful uh, and now desirable district. And there are lots of other great examples of council housing right up until the 1970s, mm-hmm. um, just before Margaret Thatcher started to wind it down. And of course, council housing's had a bit of a bad image from that period, and definitely there were some mistakes were made and there are some bad examples. But there are some really great ones. So I talk about Churchill Gardens mm-hmm. in the city of Westminster, designed very soon after the war, which are very plain but elegantly proportioned blocks with open spaces between them, which allow for garden, playgrounds, etc., with a kind of sense of openness towards the river. And there was actually a complaint at the time. It was next door to Dolphin Square, which is a slightly older private development. And... It's reported that some of the residents of Dolphin Square actually complained that the people in, in uh, the council housing were, were getting nicer flats than they were. I talk about Central Hill, which is quite in, sort of on the edge of Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. They're actually in the borough of Lambeth, which was low-rise, not towers, but sort of draped over this hilly landscape in a, in a very beautiful way. And they were built to... They had good space standards. They had, they had uh, rules about how small you could make a room. They were concerned with where the light came from mm-hmm. and what kind of places do you make outside the front door where children might play and people could meet and so on. So I did feel the need to kind of redress the balance because of this still very dominant view that all council housing from the 20th century was a disaster. And now we're getting into, into a situation, well, through right to buy, mm-hmm. as, you, as you say, a lot of these flats have been sold. And those Churchill Garden ones have been sold to MPs, yes, which yes, is so the greatest irony. MPs are living in and in Lillington Gardens as well. Yeah. Which is, um, yeah, I mean, I used to know a, an old lady who lived on Lillington Gardens estate and she would just be amazed to think that MP might live in her flat. So, yeah, we are slowly through right to buy, resale. Those homes are kind of tending to go into the private sector. There's now an attitude out there. I mean, council estates are now being sort of identified as a bit of a soft target for building new, more homes, because they actually tend to be quite low density. They're, they're not as high density as you might think because of the amount of green space mm-hmm. they have. So it's quite tempting to say, well, we can just knock all this down and rebuild it at a high density and we get more units. And that goes with a, there's this group called Create Streets, for example, who are saying streets, sort of Victorian-style streets, are always the best form of building housing is what people like best they work well they're sort of efficient you can achieve quite high densities with them and I mean I like streets too you know I think streets are great but I don't think it's the only way to build Mm -hmm. housing and I think there's a danger of doing the reverse mistake that was made in the 20th century so in the 20th century people looked at Victorian streets and said oh these are slums yeah and horrible let's knock them all down and build 
tower blocks, etc. And undeniably, that was done too drastically, too violently. And, and then people went, oh, that was a bit of a mistake. We could have actually just fixed the roof and put in some toilets and painted them, and that would actually have been better. And I think there's a danger we're going to do the same thing in reverse. In other words, we will look at all that 20th century housing and go, oh, it's all concrete monstrosities. It's all sort of inhumane living environments. Um, let's knock it all down and build streets. And apart from the fact that some of these places are actually great and I think important for the diversity of London, I think a really great thing about London is the incredible range of different types of house you have or flat or different ways to live. But there's also just the fact that if people live in a place for a long time, they build up networks. Mm-hmm. You know, even if they, it's not fantastic architecturally, you sort of build up a, a kind of a culture of, of just just from people knowing each other and helping each other and going to the same school and all that sort of thing. And that was what was destroyed when Victorian streets were demolished. And we're in danger of doing that again. So this is sort of what I mean by slow burning. I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at, let's say, a large 1960s council estate, you shouldn't just say, well, let's erase it and start again. You could look at, well, how can we add to it? How can we find some space and make room for more homes here? Or you know, how can we use what's good about it and while fixing what's bad about it? to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Rowan Moore. We're talking about his book Slow Burn City, London in the 21st Century. And Rowan, I want to take us in the direction of where things have started to go wrong in terms of in terms of the planning of the city for the greater good. And we're going to go back to exactly where we finished off at the, at the end of the first part, because I want to look at the example of the Haygate estate in the Elephant and Castle, which is a perfect example of what you were just talking about. So what's the story there? Okay, so the Haygate estate was a huge estate built in Elephant and Castle in the late 60s and early 70s. It was designed in the 60s, built in the 70s. And it was a massive redevelopment of what was previously quite poor housing. You can certainly criticise it because it was drastic. It was from a time when the government insisted on industrialised building techniques, so that meant that the panels that the estate was made out of were made in a factory because they were trying to make building industry more efficient. And that meant that there's a great value placed on repetition and scale. So the process of building the estate was driven by the fact it was done in a factory, which also drove the design. So it had to be big, it had to be repetitive. And that produced a place that was somewhat forbidding. It had a certain elegance. It had these very long horizontal balconies, which, you know, if you look at them as pure sculpture, was, was quite impressive but definitely a rather severe place. But at the same time, it had in the middle this kind of lush green mm-hmm. area with smaller houses, kind of protected, sheltered. And so it's flawed, but by no means terrible in every way. And in the late 90s, there was an idea to uh, knock it all down and replace it with newer, more energy efficient, more numerous homes. And... You know, that in itself was not necessarily a bad thing, but they did overlook some certain important aspects. For one thing, they kind of caricatured the estate as mm-hmm. sort of miserable, crime-ridden. The crime figures were actually lower than the average for the borough. A lot of people liked living there, and they also looked, overlooked the existence of the trees. They literally did a master plan that didn't show any sign that anyone had noticed there were some rather beautiful, mature trees in the middle of the space. And as it turned out, it was very difficult to make it stack up financially. The only way they could think of to do it was to, to go into partnership with a private developer for the whole, to redevelop the whole thing. And that really meant that the developers could progressively improve their deal at the expense of the, of the public. Mm-hmm. So you went from an estate that had over a 1,000 homes, which were mostly council flats, what we would now call social rented, 
um, to a new development where there are, the numbers are not finally fixed yet because it's not all done, but around about 80 plus a certain number of what's called affordable, which means that it's, well, there are different types, but it, it's quite a lot more expensive than social rented. But the outcome is that there's been a net loss of, very big net loss of affordable and social rented homes. There's been enormous disruption for the people who, who, who lived there. And, and I mean, uncertainty. Anybody listening to this would, would have presumed that the whole idea of knocking down the estate and replacing it with something else was for the benefit of the people that already lived there. Yeah, which it was. And, and you know, you wouldn't, I don't want to criticise your initial idea too much. You know, at the time it didn't seem like such a, it seemed like a good idea. And it was also an idea that there's something wrong with how... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Having a, a ghetto, essentially, like having a place where 4,000 people live who are essentially from the same sort of income group. And there's an idea that it's better to have people from different, different incomes, different classes, if you like, who could actually sort of be mutually beneficial and that begins to sound like social engineering but it's not in principle dumb either that is something that's attractive about other parts of London because mm-hmm. you do have mixtures of people of different backgrounds and classes and incomes but I think we should learn from that experience and I think if you're doing the Haygate again you'd look harder at what you have already you wouldn't demonize the architecture you'd notice there are trees you wouldn't just hand the whole lot over to one developer you would do it incrementally. You wouldn't sort of throw everyone out with a view to letting some of them back in in the future, some point in the future. But I'm not completely clear that that lesson has been learned. For example, that sort of cross-party agreement that this approach to estate regeneration is actually a good thing. Lord Adonis, who's a Labour peer, held up the Haygate as a model of how to do it. And that I find really worrying. <laughs> because the best... I mean, you can, you can say, you can make excuses for what happened at the Hague Gate. You can say, well, people acted in good faith, but they couldn't entirely have predicted how it would turn out. But to say, you can say it's like a good idea that wasn't well executed for all sorts of reasons, but to actually hold up as a model, I find really, really worrying. And I think, as I say, I think there's a, a real danger that council estates are seen as a soft target because it's politically very difficult to build on the green belt. Very difficult to build in the outer suburbs, although there's quite a good case for sort of densifying the outer suburbs. There's some, I mean, a lot of towers are being built, but that can sometimes cause difficulty. So it's easiest to go for the council estates, to demonise them as sink estates, which mm-hmm. is what David Cameron is doing. He just says they're sink estates without really differentiating between them. So I think that's going to be a bit of a battle because I think whoever is mayor, but especially if it's that Goldsmith, that's their big idea. And they're kind of going to go after the estates and they're going to find it's not as easy as they think. It's interesting how you know, the, the estate, that estate is demonised in the, the initial promotional material to talk about what the plan is for the estate is in terms of it being like some sort of crime-ridden ghetto. And then, of course, 
it's sold in exactly the same way, but as vibrant and diverse in the publicity material of people buying the flats. You mean in the new version? Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, I talk about the... Yeah, there's a kind of promotional video that was made for Elephant and Castle, which celebrates the, yeah, the, the ethnic diversity, the Sierra Leonese community, the Latino community, without really dwelling on the fact that those people are probably not going to find a homes in the new look Elephant and Castle. The Elephant and Castle is also a, a good... A good example of a, a you know, literally, literally towering over, casting a shadow over the Haygate Estate is the Strata nice. Tower, like one of the most, <laughs> one of the most egregious of, of the, you know, the, I think in the book it says over four hundred now, over twenty story towers that have that have appeared in London. They haven't appeared yet. There are four hundred uh, in the pipeline. Mooted. Yeah. So I mean, that Strata in particular, it looks like you know it's got those non moving. Windmills yeah. on the top. It looks like something that like some supervillain would live in. Mm-hmm. But um, there's also this idea that you know Boris Johnson w- wanted to reject uh, Ken Livingstone's idea of creating sort of Dubai on Thames yeah. along the Thames, and obviously that has not happened because there are these towers popping up everywhere, mm-hmm. and as you said, loads of them mooted. So what's what's the impetus behind that? What's so attractive about those towers? Um, well, it's an easy way to make money, basically. Yeah, so Boris was elected on the promise of stopping towers or slowing them down. He went in absolutely the opposite direction. But I think we know by now he's not someone who is completely consistent. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, it's a little bit naive to think he means what he says. And so we're building towers because, well, from, from the developer's point of view, it's a good way to make money. You can get more units on the site. You can sell them for higher values the higher up the tower you go. There, there is this now international investment market in London residential property. So, you know, people all over the world buy London flats as an investment or a safe haven for their cash. And sometimes that's criminal money, as we discovered with the Panama Papers. Sometimes it's people like President Assad parking his ill-gotten gains. And so that's one pressure. Then you have local authorities who are increasingly squeezed for cash. And one way they can, and they're heavily incentivised financially by government to give permission to residential development. So they're strongly inclined to to say yes. At the same time, their planning departments are very poorly resourced. So the planners are supposed to keep deal with this flood of, of towers, and they just can't cope. And then at the same time, it's encouraged by, or by Livingston and Johnson, and because they. Well, one, they just want to attract investment. They think investment at all costs is good for London. And I would say, well, can you look at what kind of investment and what it's actually achieving? Investment is great, good, obviously, but I don't don't think you should be completely indiscriminate about what it is. And they also like it because they can get percentages from the development for things like Crossrail and affordable housing. So, in fact, Livingston and Johnson behave in a very similar way like this because the London mayor is rather limited in how much money he has to play with but one of the ways he can get money to play with is from what's called planning gain from from the money that developers pay when they get planning permission or the benefits that they supply so all these forces kind of point in the same way and against that you have a kind of rather a planning system that is more and more weakened by shortage of money and also government policy that sort of undermines it so that's really where we get the outcome and then there were particular individual decisions that that sort of opened the the doors what we're seeing. I mean, the Shard was very significant because the Shard was really pretty clearly contravened some planning rules. But the argument was, well, it's designed by Renzo Piano, who's a famous architect, so, you know, that makes it better. And and I think a lot of people would say, with the Shard, okay, we think it's an addition to London. I mean, lots of people have different views about that. But but then that argument was used again and again. But where the, sort of, the, the argument about good design was more and more watered down, and of course, it's a really subjective thing. What is good mm-hmm. design? So, so with the Shard, it was necessary to employ Piano, who's you know one of the world's most famous architects. And then with a lot of these towers, they they just got less and less ambitious in who they employed. And the really big one was the um, what was called the Vauxhall Tower. Now it's called the St George Wharf Tower mm-hmm. in Vauxhall, which is very very conspicuous in the views from Westminster Bridge downstream. Sorry, upstream. House of Parliament on your right which was identified in the planning document as an important view. And that went through the whole planning process. It went to what's called a public inquiry, 
which is almost the final stage. Um, Ken Livingstone, who was the mayor, paid taxpayers' money to support the tower in the inquiry. The inspector said, no, this is absolutely wrong. It should not be built. It's against, very clearly against policy. But the last word in the matter is not with the planning inspector. He only makes a recommendation. The last mm-hmm. word is with the Secretary of State, the relevant Secretary of State, who was John Prescott at the time. And John Prescott, against very heavily clear advice from his civil servants, which came out through a Freedom of Information request, approved it. And that really established a precedent that made it very, very hard to oppose, that kind of hugely lowered the bar for you know, what is, uh, what's acceptable. I mean, also, I mean, although obviously, as you just said, and it's true that, you know, taste is subjective, that development is nobody's idea of good design. Well, no, I mean, famously, well, there was, there was an earlier phase of the development by the same architects and the same developer, which was twice voted the, the worst building in the world, I think, by a poll of architects. And, yeah, I don't many, know many people who think that St George's Wharf Tower is great architecture. But now that's set a precedent, and there's going to be a whole lot more towers next to it, which are actually bigger. Um, which was another thing that happened, because then, then it's decided, well, the St George's Wharf Tower is, should set a height limit, that's the maximum for that area, and that was another clearly stated policy. But then some people came on and said, oh, well, actually, we want to build bigger than this, and, and the relevant authorities said, oh, yeah, OK. So, you know, you have a, they had a rule, and then, then they break it. But I'm not, you know, I have to say this again and again, I'm not against towers. I think, actually, a really interesting thing is happening to London, which is its scale is changing, because of increasing population and prosperity. And, and it's something that's happened before, obviously. I and mean, the city has grown in every direction. If you look at 17th century, uh, 18th century paintings of London, you see the banqueting house in Whitehall by Inigo Jones, which was early 17th century building. And it looks massive. It's just standing up on its own with all these sort of little stuff around it. And if you go to the banqueting house now, it's looks tiny. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's the smallest building on Whitehall almost. And um, you know, there's nothing wrong with the city making these jumps in scale. And, and they, are, they are jumps quite often, and it's not always like a smooth progression. But I think, and I think that can be a positive thing. It's, you know, it's a new aspect to London that could be great. But if you're going to do it, I think you really have to use some intelligence in how these towers work with each other, mm-hmm. how they work with what's there already, what kind of places do they make at ground level, where they should go. And, for example, there's, um, there's a place called South Quay, which is in the Isle of Dogs, mm-hmm. uh, just south of Canary Wharf. And there are 23, I think, potentially different plots there, all owned by different people. And they've started giving planning permission for really tall residential towers on individual plots, such that if every single plot had a tower like such a tower built on it, you would potentially end up with some of the highest residential densities in the world, mm-hmm. like Hong Kong level or higher. And that in itself is quite an and interesting that, idea. And that's interesting. That could be really exciting, you know, and that could be an extraordinary part of the city, but it's not going to be. You're going to have a tower, you're going to get a funny little bit of landscaping around the foot of the tower, and then you're going to have another one with another funny little bit of landscaping, which won't really join up because they're different developers. So it's going to be a sort of horrible mess, really. And you could instead say, well, what? how can we actually, with this colossal amount of investment that's going into this site, you know, how can we make it something incredible that is also has some element for the public, that it's not just a sort of playground for the people who live there? But really, we're not capable of that kind of thinking in London at present. I, I also think there's a, a problem, and there is, there is a bubble, there's a London residential property bubble, which will burst probably at some point. And I think that's very short-sighted. I think it's ultimately bad for business, bad for investment, because if we are encouraging overseas investors to put their money into residential development that in the end is not very good quality and which then loses value because the market collapses, they're going to be very, very wary of going back to London in the future. So it's not... We're kind of selling shoddy goods and I think that's not good business. I'm Jonathan Meads and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. One other example of, of something bad that's potentially happening in, in the city right now, which is the, the Garden Bridge, the notorious Garden Bridge, which you talk yeah. about in the book. And, 
And actually, um, Jonathan Mead reviewed the book, did a brilliant review of it. And in that review, he mentions that, you know, it's perhaps not soon enough to describe the Garden Bridge as crooked, as men. <laughs> um, but actually, I think now we're, we're further down the line where we probably can. We, there was a, an article on our, own, on our own website about how, like, freedom of information stuff has come out, about mm. how, you know, like, the, um, the sort of tendering process for it mm. looks, is starting to look more and more dodgy now. But this, you know, this very idea again brings us to this idea of the of the the public and the private yeah. and the, the whole idea of this bridge was sold as something that would be wonderful and accessible and beautiful mm. to the public and again mm. the more and more we hear about it, it emerges that that's that was never really the case um, yeah i mean i think my problem with the i have well, a number of problems with the garden one is i just don't think it's going to be what it claims mm-hmm. to be yeah i think the idea of a garden above water that the public can go on fantastic you know who could not like that but i don't think this particular bridge is going to be all things it claims. So, you know, this is going to be a haven of peace, a major tourist attraction, and a useful thoroughfare for people, for commuters and whatever. I just don't see how you can be those three things simultaneously. I think, you know, the visualisation shows wonderful, lush gardens. I think there's a reasonable doubt whether they will be really quite, you know, in this very exposed position, whether the plants will kind of grow. I think it's a very clumsy piece of design. The, the computer visualisations are very clever. They make it look beautiful. But if you look mm-hmm. at the details of the way in which the ramps and the stairs hit the ground, things like that, I think, I think it's awkward. I think it's a sort of grand distraction project. It would matter less if the mayor and everyone else were doing a brilliant job of tackling London's real issues. But they're not. And, and you know, Boris Johnson's got a bit of a track record of these these follies, essentially, these uh, vanity projects, mm-hmm. like the Orbit sculpture in the Olympic Park, the Emirates airline, the cable car uh, near to the Millennium World well, to O2 Centre. And you know, those are about really making gestures and not solving any problems. The other problem with the Garden Bridge is the level of dishonesty that has gone mm-hmm. through the whole project. So it was first launched as a... So a, a gift to the public from the private sector. It was going to be completely paid for by private money. Then it slipped out that there was going to be £30 million for it from Transport for London budget, then £30 million from the Treasury. Then there's a kind of... It's going to cost £3.5 million a year to run. Uh, and they're kind of fudging about whether that's going to be paid for by the public or the private sector. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine it paid for by the public sector. So that's just not honest... To, to say it's a gift and then actually, oh, well, turns out we're paying for it after all. But I just think that sort of funding could do so much more to improving London's spaces in big ways, little ways. And it's right next to the South Bank Centre, mm-hmm. which has been struggling for 25 years to sort of smarten itself up and improve its facilities. And they've had project after project after project, which has founded because... The only way they can fund it is to sort of stuff it with restaurants and some of the versions have had flats and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. Um, offices, they're still struggling and they still have a problem of, you know, kind of making it into Terminal 5 at Heathrow by shoving all these restaurants into what could be a great, and it is in many ways a great, great and unique place. And if a bit of the money that's going into the Garden Bridge went into the South Bank, you know, the problem will be solved. It will be fantastic. But things like the, the maintenance budget for all the green space in the, in the borough of Lambeth, which is on the south side of the bridge, that was cut from 4.4 million a year to 2.2 million a year mm-hmm. because of local authority cuts. The budget for the Garden Bridge is 3.5 million a year. In other words, it's going to cost significantly more to run this bit of green space, which is less than half a football pitch, I think, a total green area. It's going to cost more to run that than all all the little parks and green spaces in the entire borough of Lambeth, and that just seems, you know, daft. Just to finish off then, Rowan, you end the book with a, a manifesto of how things could be better, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but, but just before we do, or to get into that, we're recording this right now in what is sort of really the, the arse end of the new development of King's Cross, yeah. but, you know, over to, if we walk back down towards the station, things are going on. It's all right, isn't it? It's not. It's yeah, King's not Cross bad. is all, all right. That's a good description of King's Cross. Yeah, it's not bad. It's um, it's it's a kind of well thought development. They've kept things like some of the old, great, fantastic industrial buildings, the Camley Street Nature Reserve, 
which is another green space created by a sort of popular action. The the planning is quite intelligent. They they've got some reasonably good buildings, um, nice open spaces, nice access to the canal. I can think of a lot of ways you could do it better, but it's definitely pretty much the best private sector large scale development in London. So that does give you a model of how to do it. And there are no towers, or well, there's there's kind of one tower um, in one part of the site. So it also shows how you can you don't have to build towers to to build a lot of stuff. But it's a, it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about because, yes, it's built by a private company, but it's very heavily influenced by uh, the fact that there was some public ownership because, <laughs> the, because of land associated with building the Channel Tunnel link. The London Borough Camden was very, very involved in steering it, and Islington, but more Camden than Islington. And there were also very vocal local residents who campaigned to keep these industrial buildings and Camden Street Park, without whom those things would have gone or a lot of them would have gone so it's, an, it's, it's a very good microcosm of the way London progresses through contest debate, different interests coming together but I would, I'd like to think King's Cross is sort of base camp for a fantastic new kind of urbanism mm-hmm. but I have a bit of a worry that it's as good as we're going to get and uh, we're going to go in the opposite direction Well I think, I mean the obvious thing to say before you know, sort of any discussion of how things can be better is is that we need to deal with the housing crisis. That's yeah. got to be the key to to anything, yeah. really, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, by the way, I don't I don't want to be complete or just miserable all the time because yeah, I do think London is basically a fantastic city, and I I prefer not to talk about crises and solutions to crises, although there is a crisis. But um, yeah, it's more how can London find a response to its Success. Mm-hmm. And these are problems of success to a large degree because more and more people want to be in London. So how can London find a response that is worthy of itself mm-hmm. and is worthy of its history? And very obviously the biggest issue is housing. Yeah. Everybody knows that. It's a problem of numbers because London's population is growing rapidly and we are very consistently not building the numbers to meet that. It's a problem of price, as we all know. And it's a problem of quality because I think a lot of what's being built is, is junk. And by the way, of course, we might have a crash. The prices might drop. But that's not really a solution because when the prices drop, then the numbers of buildings drop as well. So, you know, that doesn't really solve anything. So you need to look at where's the space? Where can we fit the new housing? And there are a lot of options, but none of them are easy options. So towers can contribute something to that. You can look at densifying outer suburbs. Tony Travers from the London School of Economics says that if the whole of Greater London was built at the same density as the borough of Islington, which is you know, generally agreed to be quite a nice place, it could house 20 million people. And that's because a lot of London is two-storey streets or streets of semi-detached houses with a lot of space around them. You can do something with building on council estates. I do think people should look at the green belt. I don't think that should be excluded from the conversation. You can build on brownfield industrial land, but increasingly there's a problem there with what that actually means is you actually destroy businesses, destroy mm-hmm. space for business. So that's becoming a less and less uh, viable option. So there are all these options, but none of them are easy. They all require some intelligence because you can't just turn up in Bromley and say, OK, this is now Islington and uh, we're going to rebuild you. You have to consider what you know, the, the, the rights and, and reasonable wishes of the people already there. It makes a huge difference how you build it. You, know, you, can, you can plan things well or badly. So that really comes on to the second point, which is who's going to build it? And it's not, you know, the market has been given the chance over a very long period to meet London's housing need. And it's not doing it, and it never will, because it's not really in the interests of developers to build so many houses that there's a significant reduction in, in, or they become more affordable. And, and, you know, why should they? It's not really their job to sort of address every social issue in London. And so I think the public sector is going to have to build more seriously than it has until now. And I don't really have time to go into the details of how we would do it, but it's not a pipe dream. It's possible. Other countries do it. Uh, and, and this sounds like an absolutely mad idea in the current political climate, which is going in the opposite direction, obviously. But on the other hand, all the main mayoral candidates are actually saying something like that. They are, in fact, saying that it would be good if, if boroughs and maybe uh, the mayor himself actually had 
the opportunity to build more. And that doesn't all have to mean like 60-style council housing. You know, you can build developments with different kinds of tenure and um, levels of affordability and so on. But it's a huge thing. And I, th- I think there needs to be a real shift in mentality, which is not going to happen at all quickly. There doesn't seem to be any sign of it happening with the current government. But the you know, something I found from researching the book was it does take a very long time to address these kind of needs. and But it, they do, in the end, it happens. So you know, people were pointing out for 20 years that the Thames was full of sewage and that this was extremely unpleasant and dangerous before, and they were even coming up with solutions for it before anything even started to be done about it. But then it was done, you know, and, and this amazing sewage system was created and, and the embankments of the Thames were created and so on. I don't actually believe it makes a huge difference who is elected mayor because I think they're both constrained or both the main candidate or anybody who might be mayor is constrained by things that are the same whoever is in office it does probably have to come from national government and I have no idea how that is what the political steps are to national government changing its outlook but you just have to point things out and hope that it gets somewhere. Well, we're nearly out of time, so I think that's a perfect point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Rowan Moore. We've been talking about his book, Slowburn City, London in the 21st Century, which is out now from Picador. So Rowan, thanks for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.